This is, this is the first Sunday of Advent. And uh, as we're looking ahead to the Christmas season, the Advent season is an anticipation of the coming of Christ at Christmas. And this word Advent means arrival. Advent means appearance. It means the coming of someone or something. Advent is the dawning of something new, something unique. And, and the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we call Advent because we're anticipating this celebration at Christmas of the Incarnation. So here's how I want to begin this morning. Let's begin with a thought experiment. Okay, imagine that we're having a conversation about goodness. What is good? What is true? How do we define what goodness is? We could probably, together as a group, wax eloquent for hours about this notion of goodness. We could probably define what we mean by goodness, discuss what it means to practice goodness, describing the difference between good and evil. We, would, might, we might even make ourselves feel really good about talking about goodness. But what would happen if goodness, capital G, opened the door, and walked in the room. What would change in our conversation? What would happen if the embodiment of goodness himself entered the conversation? Think about this. If we're having a, a conversation about the concept of, of, of what is good, and then the fount of all goodness himself came in the room, what would happen? This is exactly a question that was posed by missionary and theologian Leslie Newbegin. He, he says that this has probably happened to all of us. I mean, maybe you've had this experience. You're talking about someone, hopefully good things, and then that person comes in the room and the conversation completely changes because there's something about this reality that when we're talking about someone when they're not there, you're sort of in control of all of the, the conversation. But when that person enters the room, suddenly everything gets turned upside down. When that person enters, you now have to shift to a completely different mode because their presence changes everything. Now, Newbegin says this is exactly what happened at the advent of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Messiah. In, in many ways, if you look at the context there, the, the Jewish people for many generations had been talking about this reality. They've been talking about God. And then now here all of a sudden in this manger in a stable in a little town called Bethlehem, we witness the arrival of the Son of God. The sudden appearance of the Word made flesh. The glorious dawning of the fullness of deity in bodily form. God has entered the room and God has spoken. And so we need to stop and listen. We need to open our ears, open our hearts to listen. We need to see the embodiment of truth and goodness himself. The incarnate son of God. And as we looked in the gospel of John, the incarnate son of God looks upon us and he says, who do you say that I am? See, our culture, friends, is searching for what is good and true. Our culture is often searching in all the wrong places, trying to find what is good and what is true, and they're trying to define that without God. And maybe that's where you are today. But here's what I want you to hear. The, the, uh, the shocking reality of Christmas is that God has entered into history 
that we can no longer have merely conceptual conversations about what is true or good. You need to hear this. Truth is now a personed event. Truth is now an incarnate reality. An embodiment of King of Kings, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to whom we must bend the knee. Okay, so this is what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about the glory of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be confronted with whether we know him. We're going to see his glory. We want to uh, be confronted with whether we surrender to the reality that God has come in the flesh. And guess what, friends? His advent demands that we worship, that we worship him. So let's open our Bibles to John 17, verses 1 through 5. If you need a copy of the Bible, raise your hand. You can follow along with me as we read John 17, 1 through 5. And what we're going to do is, is, again, we're looking at this farewell of Jesus with his disciples in the upper room as they're celebrating the Passover the evening before Jesus is crucified. There's this climactic moment before Jesus and his disciples head out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to be arrested there. And Jesus, at this moment, stops and prays. And so our text this morning is the first part of his prayer. We're going to spend the next two, two more weeks looking at the rest of his prayer as we look ahead to Christmas. But this morning we're going to look at part one. So let's read together. Follow along as I read John 17, 1 through 5. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This is the word of the Lord. All right. There is a, an interesting, a fascinating flow to these verses. This is an example of a literary structure that we call chiasm. And this means crossing. And it comes from the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X. And what it does is there are parts of this passage that draw parallel lines to the center to draw our attention to the middle of this text. And so in order to emphasize something specific, a writer will use this form in order to draw your attention to a specific concept. So here's what this looks like in our passage, what this structure looks like. You can go to the next slide. You can see the parallels of how it unfolds. Verses 1 and 5 repeat the same request. The same imperative, Father, glorify your son. And then in verse 5, Father, glorify me in your presence. They're in parallel to one another. Then verses 2 and 4 are in parallel in describing Jesus having authority over all people and authority in that the Father has given him in salvation, the sense of him giving eternal life. And then verse 4 describes how that he has finished the work, that he's doing the Father's work to bring about redemption through his life, death, and resurrection. Those stand in parallel, his giving eternal life and the work that he has done to achieve it. And it all draws our attention to the middle, the center, verse 3. 
This is eternal life. Jesus defines what he means by this. To know God the Father through God the Son. So that's how we're going to approach this. This is how his prayer focuses in on this center. So what I want to do is work our way from the outsides in. We're going to first start with verses 1 and 5 and talk about the glorification of Jesus. Then we're going to go to verses 2 and 4 and explain the redemptive work of Christ as he, that he has done, his authority to give eternal life. And then we're going to end with verse 3, which crystallizes the heart of the gospel. That because of the incarnation, God, because God has entered the room, we must come to know the Father through Jesus Christ. Okay, let's, let's jump in and jump into verses 1 and 5, talking about glorifying Jesus. Now, verse 1, go to the text with me. It ties this prayer back to the previous section. Jesus uses some key words here that we've seen before, and John even sort of teased this up by tying it back to the last section. Now, if you are here last week, Jesus used time as a way of marking a contrast. He used time to mark a contrast between the pre-cross reality and the post-cross reality. And so look at Jesus and how he uses another time word to mark this dramatic shift. Verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Do you see the word hour there? Some of your Bibles translate it as time. Sometimes it's, it's actually using that word time. This word has come up over and over again in the Gospel of John, and it is typically used one of two ways. The first way that this word hour or time is used is when Jesus repeatedly in his ministry says, my hour has not yet come. People want to push him faster into taking control. Let's go down to Jerusalem and take care of business. Let's enthrone you, Jesus. And he says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. The other way that this word time or this word hour is used in the Gospel of John is in statements like this. A time is coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. A time is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language but will tell you plainly about my Father. Over and over, Jesus, on the one hand, says, my time has not yet come, but guess what? A time is coming when everything will change. And here, at this moment, this climactic moment right before he goes to the cross, the evening before, he finally says, my hour has come. If you see what unfolds in the Gospel of John, this is a shocking reality. This, my hour has come. Everything in history is about to change. And Jesus is staring down the cross. And what he sees is that the cross will become the pinnacle display of the glory of God. Okay, what do we mean by this word glory? Let's define this. All right, we see it over and over again to glorify in this text. What does it mean to glorify? If you look at verses 1 and 5, it's the same request. It's actually the same verb that is used there. Father, glorify your son in verse 1. And then, now, Father, glorify me in your presence. 
these concepts of glory bookend this whole first section. And so they sort of frame the whole conversation. So here's what I want you to understand. This word glorify, what does Jesus mean by it? A simple definition is this. To clothe with splendor. To glorify means to clothe with splendor. Think of a king on his throne, regal and powerful and benevolent and full of wisdom. This word glorify describes this splendor, this amazing reality of the greatness of who God is. So let's dig a little bit deeper here because I want you to see this idea of clothing with splendor kind of unfold in the text. So look at verse 1. There's a couple clues here that we see about glory. In verse 1, we see this sort of reciprocal glorifying within the Godhead of the Trinity. That the Father glorifies the Son so that the Son may glorify the Father. And there's this exchange of, of, of splendor within the relationship of Father and Son. So we see this reciprocating of this glory that has existed. Verse 5 tells us that that glory is eternal and preexistent. That Jesus, as the text says, he prays that he would be glorified in the presence of God, of the Father, with the glory I had with you before the world began. In other words, Jesus has eternally shared in the glory of the Father. Now, taken together, these start to bring a theological reality into focus. Jesus has come from glory and is going back to glory. He voluntarily gave up his glory and is being restored back to glory. And at this moment in the upper room is the pivot point in all of that trajectory. As Jesus prays, he looks at his disciples and he says, you need to realize this, the path to the glory of heaven, the path that I'm on, is nothing less than the cross. See, Jesus left his glorious throne and he came down to earth incarnate in human flesh and through the, the cross he is glorified. There's this sense where this word glorify means to lift up and even in the reality that Jesus is nailed to a plank of wood and lifted up in glory. That the glory of his, this shame and suffering and outpouring of wrath at Golgotha, followed by the victorious resurrection of Jesus, they are nothing less than the Son's glorification. The display of the splendor of God in all his love and mercy and justice and goodness and power. Friends, here's what I want you to understand. This reality of Jesus' glory, his being clothed with splendor and majesty, is perfectly communicated to us. It's perfectly described in Philippians chapter 2, verses, two, verses 6 to 11. Because Jesus emptied himself of glory only to be glorified through his humble death on the cross to secure our redemption. Okay, I want you to see the text afresh. If you've read Philippians 2 before, just listen with fresh ears. You'll see it on the screen. This is what Paul writes about this reality of Jesus in the incarnation and, his, and the cross. He says about Jesus, who being in, the, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Woo! Can I get an amen? Amen. Can you see the, the splendor of God displayed here? That Jesus in his rightful splendor and glory of being enthroned gave that up willingly for you that he came in 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 full measure of his humble love for us and through the cross and his resurrection is glorified this is, this is where we get to kind of the next part of our passage because this glory, this splendor that we see of him having the name above every name, it, it, we go to the next layer in to see how the redemptive work of Jesus and the authority that he has to give eternal life spring from this work on the cross. So look at verses 2 and 4 now. The work and authority that Jesus does. The, the work he does, the authority that he has. Now verse 2 helps us to see the purpose for why Jesus came to earth in the incarnation. Okay, look at verse 2 with me. The text says, For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Did you notice the word all repeated twice? That's not an accident. That word all comes up twice in this verse in order to explain, describe an important theological reality that we see in the Bible. You see, as the text says here, Jesus has authority over all people, or some of your Bibles say all flesh, all humanity, so that he might give eternal life to all those whom the Father has given him. There is this sense in this one sentence of the universal authority of Jesus over all of humanity for the purpose that the Father would grant salvation to particular individuals within humanity. So there's this one in the same sense of Jesus' authority over all and then his particular expression of redemption and salvation to those within humanity who bend the knee to Christ. Now we see this across the scriptures in, in different passages. This, the Bible presents this reality, this, this, this sort of two layers here. Because e even in familiar passages like this, we know that God so loved the world. John 3, 16. The, world, the, the word world there is the word cosmos. God loves his creation. That, that we see later on in, in, in the scriptures that, that there is this sense that he, he loves the world and that all, he wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 4. There's this sense of the grand picture of God's love for his creation and his desire that everyone would bend the knee in total devotion to him. And yet we also see in the scriptures that we assert that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. That's the rest of John 3.16. That those whom the Father draws to Jesus 
John 6, 44, are those who are saved. That, that we see the sense of the choosing work of God, the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, 1 Peter 1, 2. There's a sense of the particularity in bringing salvation only through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. There is no other way. This is why Jesus, in that parallel verse in verse 4, he describes the particular work he has done. In verse 4, the text says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. This anticipates what's coming up the next day. And, and we see that, that, that Jesus, in all the things that he has done, has given glory to the Father. He's brought the glory of God and put it on display. In his incarnation, we see display of glory. In his miracles, we see a display of glory. In his teachings, we see a display of glory. In his love and compassion for people, we see a display of glory. In his decisive words, his judgment, his warnings, we see a display of glory. And now, as Jesus marches to the cross... And in the coming resurrection, these are displays of the glory, the splendor of God. <coughs> you see, I want you to understand this. Just soak in this reality. His splendor is unmatched. The splendor of God in the person of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection display the particular expression of the splendor of God in redemption and what he has done for us. His work, which is alone the grounds for our salvation, and his authority over all. And he brings whom the Father gives, Jesus, his work on the cross is effective in bringing new life to us. See, this brings us to the last part of the text. We've been working our way in, okay? Glory of God, particularly through Jesus, the particular work and authority Jesus has in redemption. And now, Jesus at the center defines what he means by eternal life and about what it means to know God. This is the center of this prayer, crystallizing the heart of the gospel, that because of the incarnation, we have to know God, the Father, through God, the Son. So let's talk about knowing God. This verse, verse 3, is central in this prayer. Okay, remember, we're at this pivotal moment in the upper room. It's just before Jesus goes to the cross. And here is when Jesus chooses to define very clearly what he means by eternal life. So look at verse 3 again. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. When we look at this word eternal, I want to take a little a moment and ponder the word eternal for a moment. Okay? This word eternal is rich and dynamic. There's different dimensions to it when you look at it in the scriptures. When you think about what it means for something to be eternal, there's a time element to it. That it is a life that is never-ending life. A time duration that never ends. That's what we mean when we say eternal. But there's also a sense of the quantity of the fullness of it. This is life in all of its fullness. Fullness of life. 
And then there's also a quality element to it, that it is life in all of its abundance. And so when you sort of look at all the dimensions of what we mean when we say eternal, it's never-ending life that is to the fullness of life in all of the abundance of life. There is no end. There is no lacking. It is expression, an expression of the benevolence and abundance of God. It reminds me of what Jesus said in John 10. If you remember, we studied John 10 a number of months ago. John 10, 10, Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd and the gate by which we must be saved. You have to go through him. And this is what he says in John 10, 10. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Friends, here's what I need you to understand. You were made for everlasting life. You were created and designed to be a recipient of the gift overflowing from God's life in and of himself to give you everlasting, never-ending, full, abundant life. But the curse of sin has brought death, destruction, strife, conflict, violence, evil, everything that is against it. And here's what I want to ask you. Do you crave life? Do you have a longing? Is there something deep inside of you, a desire, a tugging on your heart for never-ending abundant life to the full kind of life? This is what Jesus means when he says, this is eternal life in all of its dimensions. And the only way to know that life that is truly life is to know Jesus. Eternal life, everlasting life, flows from nothing less than knowing the only true God, our Father, and the only way to know Him is through His only Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, if you want to know God, you must know and love Jesus. Now, in the context of this passage, which has drawn our attention to the glory of God, the glory displayed in Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, what does it mean to know God? Okay, eternal life flows from knowing God, from knowing Jesus. What do we mean when we say no? Let's go back to our thought experiment from the beginning. If you recall our thought experiment, how do we move from a mere conceptual understanding of God? A, a, a concept that God exists. You could sit here and say, yeah, I believe God exists. I know that, you know, I, I know that he's, that he's real. I I, I can understand things about God. How do you move from concepts about God to a truly redemptive and transformative understanding of God, a knowledge that goes deeper from your head to your heart? What we have to realize and what we see in this text is that this answer begins at Christmas. The answer begins in the advent of of the one who brings the very presence of God from the glory of heaven to a cradle in the dirt in a barn. Whoa! That we see the answer coming in the very presence of God coming 
in Emmanuel, God with us. You see, what I, want, what, I need, what I want you to prayerfully, like I want you to understand, is that we no longer know God from a distance, as though we're going to talk about him. We no longer know God from that distant way where we sort of stand and, and shield our gaze from his holiness and, and we're afraid of, to, and we need to hide from his wrath or we, we, we we're left to know his ways, but we don't really know how to follow through with them, that we don't have his indwelling power. We're not left to have conversations about God as though he's not here. See, you need to hear this today comes so strongly through the Gospel of John. Knowing Christ personally is a knowledge that transforms. The only knowledge that transforms in that deeper way. Knowing Christ personally is that knowledge that transforms and it is a marvelous truth that we know God through the incarnate one, the good shepherd, the one who says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That we come to him. He has achieved our redemption. That knowing him is an act of surrender and trust. Repentance and renewal. You see, knowing God the Father through God the Son, we know him through his humanity. No longer distant, but God with us, one of us. And not only did Jesus join in our humanity, but he's overcome our sinful flesh. He is the first fruits of a new creation. He has, has, has caused us to be born again from the inside out, awaiting our full redemption in the new heavens and new earth, where guess what? You will see Jesus face to face. You talk about God not being distant? A renewed creation free of sin and evil and death. Resurrected bodies gazing upon the very face of our Savior. So I'll say it again. As we go through this time of Christmas, as we go through Advent, what we're going to encounter through this season is that the splendor of Jesus is unmatched. His splendor is unmatched. And our text today reveals that Jesus is worthy of worship. He prays to be glorified. He's, he's worthy to be glorified. He's clothed in splendor. And in this way, we bring glory to the Father. And so here's what we're going to do. And especially as it's so fitting, as, as Jesus is praying here on the eve of going to the cross, that we're going to celebrate communion this morning. And we're going to draw our attention to by by, by touching and tasting these elements of the bread and the juice that draw us back to this moment of the glorification of Jesus. That he died in our place. He humbled himself. And so as we do this, um, we're going to take a few minutes to, to celebrate communion together, but then also have an opportunity to shout out praises to God. Because what I want us to do is actually practice prayer of praises. Showing God, we're glorifying him, giving our praises of, uh, of reflecting his splendor. So um, I'm going to ask Paul to come up. He'll play a little bit of music as we come forward. But um, I'm going to pray, and then you can come forward through the middle aisles and grab the bread and juice. You don't have to be a member here, but just we, we want you to participate if Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And then you can go around the edges and go back to your seats. And then after a few minutes that we've all gotten the elements, I'll lead us through communion. And then we'll do some time where we shout out, 
praises of I glorify you because. So think about what you glorify God for. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the table now, as was read in this prayer of Jesus, Father, we want to bring glory. Bring our glory, our praise, and clothing you with splendor. Seeing the glorious work that you've done in your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That we would bring glory to you, God, in a way that our heart's full devotion is pointed towards you. That as we look ahead at this time of Christmas, we've got these coming weeks as we anticipate Christmas. That you would put our hearts in the right place to start this month. Our hearts would be drawn into glorifying you in word and deed this month. That in every way we would anticipate your advent, knowing that you've entered the room. You've, your presence is here among us by your spirit. And so we give you all glory and honor as we remember what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.